0: Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together as a body of Christ and that we can do it freely in our country for now and that it is a great honor to come together and worship you. We ask you now to bless this time as we open your word and to look at what you would have us to see from your word in your son's name. Amen. All right, we finished the book of Philippians last week and we're going to start the book of Colossians this week. So this means that it's going to be a lot of history about the book of Colossians. So you'll know what it is that Paul is trying to accomplish. This is another one of the prison epistles. Paul writes this from prison. A matter of fact, we know that he wrote this one at the same time he wrote the, the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to Philemon. So those three were all delivered. They were all given to Tychus to hand deliver on his trip back to the area that all those cities are in. So we know when this one approximately was done, we know where it was done, and we know who the deliverer of the letter was. And remember, in those days, mail was not delivered the way we do. You didn't take it to the post office or your mailbox, put it in the mailbox, and have a post, office, post person come and pick it up and put it in a box to be sent someplace. You gave it to a friend who hand delivered it to the person where you were going, or you paid somebody to do it. You usually gave it to a friend because you knew it would get there more than giving it to paying somebody to do it. And so we're looking at this, and Paul is writing to this church in Colossae. And a lot of people have a great big debate on whether Paul ever made it to Colossae, because there's nothing in the Bible that says I went to Colossae or Paul went to Colossae. Um, now, it does tell us that even inside this letter, there's a couple places where uh, verses 1 21 through 24 that kind of makes it sound like Paul's been there, but he basically just says, I am a minister to you all. So that doesn't necessarily mean that he was, that he had gone there. In. Uh, Acts 16 it tells us that he went through out the area of Philippi, which is where it's like a state a, a county type thing and Colossae is one of the major cities in that area so it would be hard for him to have gone there and not gone to Colossae uh, Colossae was on the major trade road from Ephesus to, to Persia so if he followed the road He definitely went through Colossae. Uh, So I am of the opinion that he probably went to Colossae. Now, did he spend a long time there? I don't think so, because Acts would have told us, I spent so many years in Colossae. But he does leave Epaphras there, and Epaphras is going to be told to us that he was the one that they considered the founder and the pastor of that church. Does not mean Paul wasn't there, didn't mean that he didn't start it, it just means there's no proof. Uh, But again, it would be like, I'm gonna drive down 40 this way and I'm gonna to go to New Mexico and I'm not stopping at Flagstaff, <laughs> okay? The only good town on the, on the way to New Mexico and I'm, not, I'm just not gonna stop there, okay? It doesn't make a lot of sense that Paul would have gone down the major road through this, through this area and not gone to Colossae. Can we be absolutely sure that he did it? No, <laughs> but again, it's that whole idea. It would have made no sense. He went all through that area. It would have made sense that he went to one of the three major cities in that area. Um, Let's see. Uh, Paul, when he was in in Acts, was with Silas and Timothy. Uh, in, In Acts 18, he went back through the area of Thyrea again. And probably if he hadn't stopped the first time, would have definitely probably stopped the second time. So again, it's one of those things where we look at it and say, did he stop? We can't absolutely say did he did it. He's writing a letter to them. So somehow they're special to him. Whether they're just special because he knows Epaphras and Epaphras is with them, telling them about him and he's writing a letter. Yeah, but how many people do you write letters to because somebody else told you about them? It's a very rare occasion for you to do that. You usually write letters to people you know. And so it is kind of an interesting thing uh, as we look at this, the, the major street uh, that runs through Colossae was a road. Roman, you know, if you don't know this, Roman was the perfect time for Jesus to have come in because the Romans built highways. Okay, they weren't just dirt roads. They actually lined the roads with with, uh, blocks. They made block roads. Many of their roads are still usable in Europe today. Most of their bridges are still used (laughs) today. So they were very good at construction and it was a great time you weren't you weren't taking your life on hands the Roman soldiers used these roads so they were safer than most roads that that were out there so you know when he, when we talk about them having built a road that Colossae was part of the major city on we're talking it was a major road around 800 AD they made another road to the south of it and kind of Colossae at that point was kind of isolated but during Paul's day he was on the major road. And so we, you know, and the hard, a lot of times we have a hard time thinking about roads back then. You know, you know we think somehow that they're brand new, but the roads have been around forever. Uh, when Moses and the children of Israel were wandering through the desert, they didn't just wander through the desert in most cases. And Many times they stayed on the king's highways of those areas because you didn't, just like here, you don't wander, you don't go four-wheeling through any, any part of the desert you want to because it's, Belongs Well, the government claims it belongs to all of them now, but you know, it might belong to people. You didn't just wander around and drink their water and you know, muddy, their, muddy their water. So the roads have always been through there. Deserts have always had roadways through them that people follow. So when we talk about these things, don't be surprised that we're talking about roads. Uh, and Rome built very nice roads. Around, around 800 A.D., the 8th century, uh, they made a road, that made Laodicea. The key part in that in that territory, and it was to the south of, of Colosse, and Colosse kind of died out after that, kind of like when, uh, when the interstate went through and Route sixty six had all these wonderful little towns all through it that virtually died because nobody drove through them anymore. Well, this is what happened to Colosse around eight hundred A.D. They they made a new road. It was in the south, and nobody came, <laughs> nobody came on the northern route, and so it's something you know amazingly like I just mentioned earlier how how much of what happens today is exactly what happens in the past it you know they changed the road and the road then nobody went to the town and it died out and it was no longer a popular place people went to the cities and they would stay at the hotels eat at the eat at the ends, um, trade goods while they were there and then they would continue on their trip well once the route changed not, we're not saying nobody came to them but it wasn't as busy as it had been before. And in around 1200 AD, the Turks destroyed Colossae. Uh, during the time when they were conquering just about everything in, in the Turkish Empire, and they destroyed virtually anything that had anything to do with Christianity, and Colossae was one of those towns that got destroyed by them. So we're looking at these things, I'm just giving you a little bit of history of who Paul is writing to. Uh, Now this book of Colossae, you're going to find is very similar to the book of Ephesians, which kind of makes sense because Paul's writing it at the same time, okay? And something I've noticed even as I preach and teach, uh, certain things keep coming out over and over. Whatever's on my heart at that time seems to be part of whatever is in, in my messages. Paul does the same thing. In the book of Ephesians, he talks about the body of Christ, the church. In the book of Colossians, he talks mostly about Jesus' preeminence over the church. It's, he's still talking about the body, but he's talking about it from Jesus' perspective, that Jesus in, is in charge. And the other one was that the people are to be the body of Christ. And now he's going to talk about how we're to be subjected to Christ in Colossians. So you're going to hear a lot of the same things in Colossians as we went through in Ephesians. Uh, good news is that Ephesians was over a year and a half ago, so we're not you may not remember my messages from a year and a half ago, so it should all be new again, unless you've read, read through these. In Colossians, the the biggest key is Jesus's head. He sends a general message to exhort the body, and we've talked a lot about this exhortation, building everybody up. And when you come to church, now I know not all churches is this way, but when we come to church, we should leave the church feeling good about having been there. And we might not like the message. You know, the message might have hit us between the eyes and stomped on our toes a little bit. But we still should feel good that we have been edified and built up, not battered and bruised. Have you ever been around somebody that makes you feel battered and bruised when you get near them? You know, it's like they just make you, you know, keep, keep pounding on you, chopping at you, and you end up feeling about eight inches high when you get done. And you just say, well, I don't want to be around this person anymore. That should not be the way it is in church. <laughs> when you leave church, you feel more like Goliath. I'm nine feet tall, nine and a half feet tall, and nothing can stop me. And hopefully that's how you're, how you're coming out. You're built up by people. You're edified and people make you feel good. Not falsely. And you know, nothing, nothing's worse than trying to build somebody up falsely. You know. And you'll look at them and go, you know, where are you coming at with all this stuff that you're talking about? And you know, I had one person one time, they didn't, I knew they didn't even know me. And they go, I like what you're doing in the church. And so I asked them, what am I doing in the church? You know, uh, they didn't have an answer. You know, I knew what I was doing in the church and I knew I did a lot of things in the church, but I knew that that person didn't know because they didn't know me. And I was wondering, do you know what I'm doing? Has somebody told you and pointed me out and you do know because my, it didn't edify me because he didn't know, he didn't know me. He was just kind of being, you know, what he thought was nice. And false edification is not good because people know when it's false. They know when you don't know who they are. They know when you don't, when you're not saying something good or something knowledgeable. So we want to look at that. So edification is a big part of this. Then the, uh, the next part of the, the last half of his book, as in all of Paul's books, is the actual practical application of the doctrine that he teaches about in the first part. So we're going to find that we're going to have very heavy stuff in the first half, of what, which is true of all of his books, or virtually all of them anyway. He gets into, these are the doctrines, these are the truths, and they take a long time to trudge through. And then he goes, these are how you apply all this stuff. And so when and we get the application, we refer back to the originals and, and work on how to apply. And it's a very, very good thing to look at. And he does a lot of battling with the Judaizers, false doctrine. And if you don't remember, Judaizers were the people that would come in after Paul left. He put, taught him about grace and the gospel of Christ. And the Judaizers would come in behind Paul and say, well, Paul has a really good message, but he didn't tell you the whole story. You've got to do all of these things to be, be godly. And so they would come in and they would try to make them become Jews in their thinking after Paul had taught them about grace and Jesus Christ being the only way. And Paul would have to write letters back to them saying, you know, hey, you know, these guys are telling you lies. They're trying to lead you down the, down the wrong path. So, and we've talked about this. Is God's law good? Absolutely. The law is good. Can we keep it? No, we cannot keep God's law. Not all of them. There's just not a way we're gonna do it. So the point is, what is law good for? It is good to tell us that we need Jesus. (laughs) Okay, it's also good to keep us out of trouble. If you obey as much of God's law as you possibly can, you're gonna stay out of trouble. When he says don't commit adultery and don't have have covetous uh, attitudes, it can keep you out of a lot of trouble. Because if you start wanting things that other people have, It can build up to the point where if you didn't have a law saying you shall not steal, you would want to steal their stuff because you deserve it more than they do, don't you? Isn't that what the flesh is gonna tell you? You know, I deserve what they have more than they do. And if it wasn't for God's law, we would just act out on it, especially if you're strong enough to act out on it. And so we look at this and the law is good. Okay, and Paul never said that the law was bad. The consequences for breaking God's law are great and there's always consequences. And we've talked many times, sin has consequence and sin always has consequences. When you break God's rules, there are consequences that you're gonna face. Sometimes really small ones, sometimes really big ones. Go out and kill somebody and there's a big consequence when you get caught. Okay, Uh, even for our world, it will tell us all about how there's no absolute truth. They still understand that killing somebody is wrong and they will punish you for killing somebody. Even though they'll tell you there's no absolute right or wrong, they'll know that killing is wrong. Go on and steal things that belong to other people, and our, and our system of justice knows that, and every other system of justice knows that taking something that doesn't belong to you is wrong. All right. So it's kind of fun when you, when you read, talk to these people who will tell you, oh, there's no absolute truth, you can do whatever you want, and yet they, have, they absolutely will tell you that there's no absolute truth. It's an absolute truth that there is no absolute truth is what they're telling you. And it's like, do you understand that that's illogical? Well, oh, no, I don't. I have no problem with that. You know, so, their very statement that there is no absolute truth is illogical in and of itself because it's an absolute statement that there is no absolute truth. You know, if you hear somebody tell them, ask them, do you realize that's illogical? And it's, our kids are being taught that. Our college students are being taught that. Most of our business people have been taught that. The sad thing is, most of our government people have been taught that too. And they're trying to run the government on an illogical assumption that there is no absolute truth. And we're, we as a people are going to pay for that, that illogical way of running the, running the government and running the world. But that is Satan's way of trying to talk to people. Just tell them there's no absolute truth. You know, there's absolutely no absolute truth. So Paul is going to be dealing with this whole mentality through the book of Colossus. That here's God's truth. Here's how you apply his truth. That's what the Bible's all about anyway, is that God's absolute truth. And this is why we need to understand, it is absolutely true. If there was anything wrong with God's word, anything, the whole book needs to be thrown away. Because we're not only betting this life on God's word, we're betting eternity on God's word being absolutely true. And if I can't trust it today, how can I trust him to keep it, keep it uh, you know, a billion years from now, a trillion years from now? If, it's not, if he's not absolutely true now, how can I trust him in the future? I can't. And this is why it's so important. This is why I teach creationism as hard as I do. Because if creationism isn't correct, if God did not create this world in seven days, then he lied to us at the very first book of the Bible? That makes no sense. And the fact that it makes more scientific sense to believe creationism than it does evolution. You know, evolution is unscientific at every portion of its of its looking at it, we cannot be able to look at that and say you know, that it's true. Now, I love talking to people who believe in evolution, who tell me they're an atheist, and I go, boy, you've got a lot more faith than I do. Mm-hmm. Now, can you imagine how much faith it takes to believe in, in evolution? Think about this, out there in the middle of ev- nowhere, because there was nowhere to be, be a part of, all of a sudden, nothing exploded in nowhere and created everything. How much faith do you have to believe that nothing, nowhere, exploded into everything? You know, it, it makes no sense. And if they believe the other way that matter has always existed, then they run into a, the laws of thermodynamics that say that you have, you have no beginning and end, and it tends toward deadness. So, if matter has always existed, and I mean always existed, and energy has always existed, we should have a dead universe. And they go, well, we're in the middle. Well, you can't be in the middle of infinity. Okay, you cannot, you cannot have anything that's eternal other than a God who is eternal and beyond nature. Nothing in nature can be eternal and still have life. So our very rules of science and logic tell us that evolution is illogical. Now they'll go. us it's illogical to believe in a God. Well, I have an all easier time believing in a God who's all powerful than nothing becoming everything. It's a lot easier for me to believe that. And I hope it's easier for you to believe that. Easier to believe in a powerful, all um, omniscient, all everlasting God than, than nothing becoming everything. Uh, and then you've got the problem of life. Where did life come, with, come from without God? Because I could look at a rock for an awfully long time and it's never going to turn into life. Okay, uh, and that's what evolution teaches. had this great big ball of rock and rain started flowing on it and it started pooling together a whole bunch of chemicals and minerals and all of a sudden poof! Abracadabra life jumps up off the rock. Think about this when you start reading meeting these people who say I believe in evolution they're saying they believe in fairy tales mythology and magic. The things just magically all of a sudden poof into existence. Nothing becomes everything and nothing becomes life. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. And they'll go, well, it took millions of years. I go, oh, you could be looking at that rock all you want. It's never going to become life. Ever. Period. End of story. It never will become life. So we look at these things and Paul talks about doctrinal issues. He's going to say the word is true. Believe the word. And this is why we need to understand the word is true in every place that it talks about. When it says that there was a flood that covered the highest mountain by 18 feet, there was a flood that covered the highest mountain up to 18 feet. Now were the mountains the same height as they are today? Probably not. Because God did great earthquakes and shifted things around at the same time too. Created great gulfs in the ocean. And we know that the wonderful thing is you find seashells at the top of the highest mountains. So we know that they were underwater at some point in time. Us as Christians, we go, yeah, it says so right here. In in Genesis 8 and 9, it tells us that the mountains were under the water. You find exactly what I think you would find, seashells. You know, The Bible is true, and we can look at it and know that it's true. It's not a book of myths. It's not a book of fairy tales. The fairy tale you hear in school all the time is millions of years ago. Doesn't that sound a lot like once upon a time? Mm -hmm. In a kingdom far, far away, (laughs) you know, Millions of years ago, when things weren't the way they are. <laughs> you know, And then we get accused of having faith and not believing. And it's an amazing thing. We need to be able to turn it around on them. And I've used it many times with them and they don't like it. They get mad at me because I make them see the foolishness of what they're believing. And it doesn't usually get them to become a Christian, but it at least makes them start thinking. You know, evolutionists will accuse creationists about not thinking. I tell you, I think a lot about what it says and I look at how it matches science. And then I'll ask them real simple, give me, give me one scientific proof of what you believe in. I'll just take one, any, any one that you want to give me, one scientific proof that matches your, your belief. And you know what? I've asked that of a lot of people, including professors, and none of them have ever been able to give me even one scientific proof. Well, Dr. So-and-so or PhD so-and-so says, no, no, I don't care what they say, what is the scientific proof? Not somebody with 100 letters after their, after their name and how it showing me how smart they are, but a scientific proof. You know, we can look at the Bible and look at what we see and say it fits. We look at the age of the sun and how much helium is in the sun and say it's not billions of years old. There's not enough helium in it. We look at how far the moon is away from us and say, well, if the moon was traveling at the quarter inch every decade that it travels away, we would not have a moon if it was millions of years here. You know, we look at the salt level of the oceans and say there's not enough salt in the oceans to be millions of years old. It's pretty easy to look at the scientific proofs that this this world is young. There's no proofs that it's old. None that stand up to being looked at. So be aware that we stand as Christians on very solid ground. We stand on logical ground. We stand on scientific ground as far as we can interpret the facts. Because one thing I want to mention is neither creationism nor evolution is science. All right. Nobody can go back to the beginning and observe what happened other than God. We cannot observe the beginnings. It means that it is not scientific. There's a lot of things that we do that we call science in this day and age that aren't scientific. You cannot put them in a test tube and test them. You cannot arrange an experiment. I'm gonna arrange an experiment to prove that life can pop up out of nothing. I don't know how you do it, uh, because first you'd have to find some place that has nothing. And they go, well, I'm doing it in a vacuum. Well, that's still something. You got glass all around your, some, your vacuum. You still have something. You know, so how are you going to scientifically prove anything at beginnings? You cannot. They, both schools of thought are philosophical, okay? And keep that in mind when you're talking to somebody and they want to claim they're, they're believing in science. They are believing in philosophy. And it's their philosophical position that there is no God and everything has to start by natural means, all right? And they had noticed that I gave you a number of presumptions there. We come in with just the same presumptions. There is a God and he started everything. I have a lot easier time believing that there is a God than I can believe in nothing, becoming in everything. So I didn't mean to get on that tangent, but let's look at the outline of the book. In the first uh, 14 verses, we're gonna have Paul's greeting to the Colossians. And he pretty much starts all of his books with a greeting. He then goes into the glory and person and authority of Jesus. And he's gonna pretty much spend a few chapters, uh, most of the rest of the chapter one on that. He's going to talk, con- condemn the disunity in Colossae about how much disunity this, this they have there in their church. You know, how many of you have ever thought that the, the first century church was perfect? Does anybody ever believe that you know, somehow? I know a lot of people, they'll tell us, well, I want to be like the first century church. They had everything all together. And I'm going, have you ever read any of Paul's letters? <laughs> what was Paul's letters about? Fix this, fix that. This is how you're supposed to do this. This is what you're supposed to do that. If the church had been perfect, and Paul had not had to write these letters, we wouldn't have most of the New Testament. Most of the New Testament is Paul telling the churches what they're doing wrong and how to fix them. And I'm glad that the church had the same problems we have because otherwise we wouldn't have these letters telling us how the church was supposed to be running. So he's going to the church of Colossae and saying you got a lot of disorder and disunity, Get, you, know, you need to fix this and you need to be exhorting one another. Uh, then he goes into the perils of the worldly uh, doctrines that they've been going in. Again, we, remember we've got the Judaizers coming in there, and telling them, "How here's your rules so you can live the way God wants you to live." Doesn't that sound what's good, what we hear most churches today? Here's your rules: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 190 million. <laughs> you know, follow these rules and you'll get to heaven. Okay. I am so glad that our relationship with God is not based on rules it's based on the grace and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, "I came, I fulfilled all the law, I died so that you to pay the price that you could not pay." And so we go through all of that. He talks about the power of the cross. He warns against mysticism, he warns against uh, ceremonialism. And ceremonialism is quite a problem even in today's church. Come in, do the same thing every week. Now, and we got to be careful live my life I get up in the morning read my Bible pray for pray for uh, you know, however long you pray ten minutes to three hours whatever it might be you're praying for you know get my breakfast go read my newspaper go to work come home you know whatever it might be that day and start all over the next day you know, unfortunately many of us and most of us kind of like patterns in life you know, God finally got me out of it because I used to be so patterned I could tell you probably three years later what I was going to do because I did the same thing every single day you now, very rarely would there be a, a difference in it. Uh, I like schedules, I, that's the kind of person I am. I like schedules, I like doing things consistently. But you gotta be careful because sometimes following a schedule can get you into a big rut where God says, uh, I'd like you over here. Oh God, my plan is to go here, I go here. I go this way every day, God. I can't, I can't go to the right, you, I go this way, God. But you want them over here? Put them in my way over here because this is where I'm going. Have you ever argued with God that way? God, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And God said, but I want you over here. Done it too many times myself. Then Paul goes on to to exhort the body of Christ. Then he goes into the duties of the family and then he requests prayer for them and then closes his his message to them. So this is what we're gonna be covering probably over four chapters. We'll be here for at least a year. over the next year, we'll be covering these four chapters, and you won't remember this introduction, but it'll be on tape on the, on the internet if you want it. Uh, but just remember, this is pretty much the way Paul has done all of his letters. And it's going to be an exciting time as we go in and we look at this. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you help us to learn from the letter to the Colossae Church, and that we will see what you would have us to do from all of this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.